Today we are going to be uh, continuing this series called Famous Last Words. You said, well, I thought, Pastor Sean, I thought we were done with that. Pastor Aaron ended that series. Well, I got a bonus sermon for you. And we're not done yet. So I want to thank all of you guys who are in Auditorium 2 with us. Give, a, give it up for Auditorium 2 people. Those of you guys watching online as well. Uh, we're going to continue this series, Famous Last Words. And it's because there's this verse in the, very, in the last chapter of 2 Timothy that always stood out to me. And it seems like a very simple verse. It doesn't seem like there's much going on there. But as we'll find out, it's pretty weighty. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Remember, this is Paul, and he's writing his last letter. This, these are Paul, the Apostle Paul's last words written down that, we, that we're aware of. And he's, he's sitting on death row, basically. And so he's writing things that are the most important things I believe he could write because it's kind of his last thoughts. And he says this in verse 11. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark... And bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, this Mark is actually also known as John Mark in Scripture. And the reason he has two names is because Mark is his Greek name and John is his Hebrew name. And so sometimes you'll see him as Mark. Sometimes you'll see him as John Mark. Sometimes you'll see him as John. But it's the same guy. And just I want to give you just a little background on this guy before we get into it so that you can understand what's happening. This Mark is actually the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So when you read the book of Mark, this guy is the one who wrote it. So when, when Paul says, bring Mark to me, he's talking about the, the author of the Gospel of Mark. And he's also the Mark, if you can remember, in Acts chapter 12. Uh, he, he was very close to Peter. We can see that later on in, in, in Peter's writing. But in Acts chapter 12, Peter is in prison. And he's, he's chained up to two guards. Do you remember this story? He's chained up to two guards. And he's in prison. And basically, Peter's on death row. Like, we, we don't know what's going to happen to him. And so there's a prayer meeting that happens for Peter's release. This prayer meeting actually happens in Mark's mom's house. And so an angel comes and sets Peter free. Miraculously, he walks out. Peter walks up to, to Mark's mom's house, knocks on the door where the prayer meeting is happening, and says, I'm here. This girl answers the door and is like, yay, our prayers are answered. Peter's here. She runs back to tell everyone, and everyone's like, no, it can't be Peter. <laughs> like, we're praying for his release, but that must be his ghost or his angel or something because, you know, surely our prayers aren't getting answered. And, and she, they, so they found out, oh, it is Peter, right? This all happened in Mark's mom's house. Now, we also know that Mark is Barnabas. You know, we see Paul and Barnabas, that he's Barnabas' cousin. And so he's also one of the guys who went on Paul's very first missionary journey. He was kind of Paul and Barnabas' third wheel on the missionary journey. And you can see him going on that. And a lot of things happened along that. But what makes this verse in 2 Timothy chapter 4 so interesting and this simple little verse is because of another simple little verse that is found in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. So remember, Paul and Barnabas and Mark, or John Mark, have gone on this first missionary journey. And here's what happens. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them, this is John Mark, or Mark, and returned to Jerusalem. Now, first, that doesn't seem like a very big deal, right? I mean, John went home. That's what happened. John went back. 
But this actually was such a big deal that it caused a split in Paul and Barnabas' relationship. It caused a split and a divide in their ministry. Watch what happens in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let's go back. They had come back home from their missionary journey. And Paul says, let's go do it again. Let's go have another missionary journey. Let's go out and visit all these places. Let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas, remember this is Mark's cousin, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. This is the Bible's way of saying they had it out, okay? They did not agree about this. They had a sharp disagreement. Paul's like, there's no way I'm taking John. There's no way I'm taking this John Mark dude. You're, I don't care if he is your cousin. Like, he left us. He left us hanging high and dry in the middle of the missionary work. There's no way I'm going to take him. And so they separated from each other. And so Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now, shortly after this, we have the famous story of Paul and Silas. Remember, they're in prison, and at about midnight, they're in chains, and they're in stocks, and they sing before the Lord, and an earthquake comes and sets them free because Paul and Silas were, in, were, were split from Barnabas. And, and I think one of the reasons why Paul had such a big deal and made such a big deal about not taking John Mark with him is because you'll have to remember back a few weeks ago when we talked about Paul's very first missionary journey. Remember when Paul talked about his persecution in Iconium and Lystra and how every, he went to all these cities and everywhere that he went, there was persecution, persecution. And how in Lystra, so bad was the persecution that people came from other cities and they stoned Paul and they thought they stoned him to death and threw him outside the city, but somehow he survived. That was in the first missionary journey. You know what happened? John Mark missed all of that persecution. So can you imagine from Paul's perspective, he's like, listen, dude, if you're just going to stick around when it's easy and not go through the hard times, I'm not taking you with me. And it was so bad that they split ways over this. This is actually what's happening in Scripture. And, and he says, if you can't come with us in the hard times, you don't deserve a shot at this. And so in the story of Paul and John Mark, we don't know what happened, but we know that something happened in between this moment when they split in Acts chapter 13, and the writing of Colossians. Because in Colossians chapter 4, I believe it's verse 10, we see that Paul mentions that Mark is with him again. So somewhere along the way, they reconciled, they worked it out, they came to terms, they had forgiveness. We, we don't know exactly what happened, but Paul says then in the scripture that we read here at the very beginning that he is useful for ministry. So I want you to see that, that John Mark goes from useless to useful. He goes from parting ways to Paul saying, please don't separate us. This is my last request. Please don't separate us. He goes from distrust to being trusted. And this is a big deal in scripture. So what I want to talk about today is I don't want to talk about how to forgive because we know forgiveness happened here. And we can talk about that a lot and we have talked about it. And we'll hint at it. But what I really want to talk about is how do we receive forgiveness when we need it? And some of us right now are in a situation where maybe we've screwed something up. You're certainly going to be in a situation like that. But how do you, how do you receive forgiveness? Well, because I don't think a lot of us really know how to do this. 
I think a lot of us just go through life and, and we try to forgive and we try to be a part of that process, but when we need forgiveness, we're awkward about it. We don't really know how to walk that out. And so I believe it's gonna set some people free today and, and, and I just want you to imagine from John Mark's perspective. Can you imagine the weight of this moment? I mean, how much John Mark had to feel? I mean, he was responsible for splitting up these two titans in the faith. He was responsible. Can you imagine the weight of what was happening in that time? The church was being born and John Mark is the one who's at the center of the division. John Mark is the one that split up the ministry. Can you imagine the weight that John Mark felt in that moment? And can you imagine also how much, how hard it would have been for him to try to walk back into that relationship and how hard it would have been for him to receive forgiveness? So I want to give you some things that I believe will help us to receive forgiveness when we need it because we need to walk this out well. And the first thing is this, number one is this, if you want to receive forgiveness well, we have to truly repent. Now, you don't have to truly repent to receive forgiveness because how many of you guys know somebody can forgive you without you ever repenting, right? And you can set somebody free from, from you can forgive somebody without ever, them ever repenting. But I'm talking about being able to receive forgiveness well. And if we wanna be a part of this forgiveness well process, then we need to make sure that we are a part of it fully. So 1 John chapter 1, verse seven says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So how many of you guys know in our relationship with God, you know, what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient. It says that he, he died on the cross, he took care of our sins. Every time we sin, Jesus doesn't need to get back up on the cross and die for us all over again. But there is something that can happen in our fellowship with God, not on God's end, but on our end when we bring sin into that. Sin can cloud our relationship and our fellowship with God. And the same is true in your relationship, in your marriage, in your friendship, in your relationship with your children. Many times, sin, it doesn't change your status. I mean, you can have sin in your marriage and still be married. But how many of you guys know it does affect your fellowship with one another, doesn't it, right? You can have sin in a friendship. You can be gossiping behind each other's back. And, and it, you can still be connected to one another, but it does affect your fellowship. And so if we walk in the light as he's in the light, then we can have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our, of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't believe this is just talking about salvation. I believe this is talking about this process that we, have to, that we need to go through even after we've received grace from God for salvation to be in this rhythm of repentance, in this rhythm of confessing our sins, not so that we can obtain salvation, but so that we can have free fellowship with God and that there's no hindrances between our relationship with God because of sin. And so when, this idea of repentance really means taking responsibility instead of assigning blame. Because how many of you guys know we live in a society that just doesn't want to take ownership for their actions, right? I mean, we live in a society that wants to blame everybody else for all their problems. We live in a society where we don't take responsibility for things. We want to find someone else or something outside of us that's the reason why we're not succeeding or why we're failing or why we've messed up. But that's not the way it is when you're following God. When you're following God, this idea of repentance means I'm going to take ownership. I'm going to take responsibility. 
And one of the reasons why it's so hard, listen, if you need forgiveness right now, or if someone has forgiven you and you're really struggling receiving that, I can tell you one of the reasons why that is, and it's this word called shame. You guys ever felt shame before? It's like you blew it so bad and you know that somebody wants to forgive you, but this idea of shame, is this, this feeling of shame, it almost keeps you from receiving forgiveness. It, it keeps you from being able to fully repent and being able to fully step into that. And, and shame is, here's the thing about shame. When you bring shame into the light, though, it, its power is diminished. But the power of shame wants to keep us in the darkness, But if we can take responsibility and bring it into the light, its power is diminished. I remember several years ago, um, my wife and I, we had a disagreement. It was probably the only time in the history of, I'm just kidding, it's not the only time. (laughs) Probably had 20 of them this week. Um, But but we had this disagreement, and we were kind of just going round and round and kind of going in this cycle of of disagreement over something. I don't even remember what it was. But I remember that I had this thought. I I found that we were in this discussion, right? And, And I had this thought. I'm not very mature. <laughs> Have you ever had that like realization like, wow, I am not very, in fact, I am not mature enough to even be having this conversation right now. And so I just, in that moment, I, I was like, I just told her, I was like, you know what? I'm not mature enough to have this conversation. I need to step back for a minute because I've recognized, I'm owning that I am not mature enough to have this conversation in a healthy way. And and you know what happened when I brought that to the light? In some way, I became just a little bit more mature. In some way, the shame started to dissipate. Because I was saying, I'm not mature enough to have this conversation. I know I should be mature enough. I know that I can be mature enough. I know that I have the tools to be mature enough. I know that I should be further along than what I am. But I just want to own where I'm really at. And I just want, to re- just want to say it out loud. And I just want to own it, take responsibility that the reason why we're in this problem right now is because I'm not mature enough, and I should be. And in that responsibility, I, be- I started to mature just a little bit more than I was before. I- I'm going to give you two ways right now that you can get rid of shame, or at least you can, you can uh, remove the feelings of shame. Are you ready for this? Two ways. There are two ways, I believe, you can get rid of shame. Probably, you can come up with more, but these are the ones that I thought about that are probably the easiest way that people do it. The first way that you can get rid of shame, if you're experiencing shame right now, is this, is, is the word called humility. Because here's what humility does. Humility brings shame and brings sin into the light. The other way you can get rid of shame is through pride. Because what pride does is tries to take sin and tries to take shame and put it back in the darkness. But either way, This is the way many people try to get rid of shame. When you feel shame, when you feel sin, it's either I'm gonna be humble and bring it to the light and own it, or I'm gonna be prideful and I'm gonna put it in the dark and hide it. But here's the thing about when you put shame and you put sin in the darkness, it doesn't stop there. It begins to grow in the darkness. It begins to grow in power so that the next time you have an issue, that you have to continue to hide things into the darkness. You have to continue to bring it back there because it's too powerful. You're unwilling to allow yourself to be humble to bring it to the light. It's harder to bring it to the light next time. But, but shame has to be dealt with. And so we have to truly repent if we want to receive forgiveness well. The second thing we have to understand about this idea of receiving forgiveness is we really need to understand this idea of atonement. 
and what this means. And so to help us out, uh, I'm going to bring in the Bible Project. They do a great job of kind of, you know, summarizing everything about this. So here is a, a quick definition, a quick picture of what atonement looks like. Let's watch. We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice. But there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Hmm. Now, therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and, and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life. And the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant and not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. And this is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to his sacrifice of atonement. 
And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in his world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual of animal sacrifice. But they were given new rituals. There are two that Jesus taught his followers to perform. The first is called baptism. Just as Jesus died, so going into the water becomes this personal connection you now have to his death. And in coming out of the water, you, so to speak, come back to life with Jesus. So baptism is the sacred ritual that joins your story to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The second ritual is called the Lord's Supper, which is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples. And he used bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And so now, followers of Jesus, they take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and in his life. So these rituals, they remind us of God's love and encourage us to live a life of love and grace. But they do more than that. They connect us to a new life source. The very power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that can deal with the evil in our own lives and transform us into people who lead lives of love and peace. So that's kind of a basic idea of atonement. Let me give you another way to think about that in the scriptures. There's a story in the Bible where these Pharisees, you guys maybe have heard this, but these Pharisees who are religious leaders in scripture, that they find, they catch this woman caught in adultery and they throw her at Jesus' feet. Remember this? And they say, the law says that we need to stone her. Justice has to be served, right? Justice has to be served. What do you say, Jesus? And this, this idea of atonement, that a wrong has been committed and someone has to pay. That's the idea, really, of atonement, that someone has to pay when a wrong has been committed. I mean, there's something on the inside of every single one of us that when some wrong has been done, that we feel like somebody has to pay. You think about, like, the tragedy of 9-11. Wasn't there something inside of humanity that was like, hey, there's been, a tra- there's been something wrong someone has to pay? You think of, like, the Boston bombing and different things like that. You think about, like, whenever someone is murdered, that there's something on the inside of us that says someone has to pay, especially when there's any crime committed towards children or something like that. There's something innate in us that just says... Somebody has to pay for this. And it's not like an I'm sorry, my bad, won't do it again, does the trick, right? Like it's not, that's not going to be enough. It's like somebody has to pay for this. This is the idea of what atonement really is. Throughout history, every tribe, every people group, every nation has come up with some sort of system 
for this something somebody has to pay to happen. For some, it's been a fine. For others, maybe there's prison. For others, uh, depending on the crime, it was even the death penalty. But throughout all of history, every single tribe or group has come up with some system to keep this justice intact. And so as we go through this story that these Pharisees throw this woman at Jesus' feet, and they say, Jesus, the, the law says somebody has to pay, and the law says that we, we stone her, so what do you say? Jesus says, let the one who is without sin be the one to cast the first stone then. Then he starts writing in the dirt. And then one by one, they begin to leave. And then he says to the woman, he says, go and sin no more, you are free. There's something about that that is wonderful and then also challenges our somebody has to pay. How could Jesus let this woman go? Where's the justice? I mean, if she committed a wrong, somebody has to pay for that wrong. Whether you, you know, we could say, well, stoning, that's, that's like a whole different. Okay, but, but she still did something wrong. So where's, her, where's, her, where's the justice in this? Even if you don't agree with the degree of it, where's the justice? Because somebody has to pay. And Jesus does something in this moment because somebody has to pay. The issue really is who's going to pay. And that's when we go to John chapter 1, verse 29. It says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God. Remember, we saw that picture of the lamb, how in the Old Testament, a lamb was used in place of, of a person for sin. And now here, Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, Jesus does the thing that we never would have thought of. Jesus says, somebody does have to pay, but I'll pay. That's atonement. It's not that justice was circumvented, it's that justice is satisfied in Jesus. Because he says, somebody has to pay, and I will pay the price. There's only one result of sin. You know, the Bible says the wages or payment for sin is death. And I mean, you guys know there's only one remedy for sin, and that's the cross that somebody has to pay. And Jesus says, I will pay the price. And when you sin, I want you to understand this, Jesus doesn't point a finger at you and say, you're finished. Jesus points to the cross and he said, on the cross, I said, it is finished. Listen, it is finished is the best news you will ever hear in your life. Because he says, somebody did have to pay for your sin, but I paid for your sin. And here's what forgiveness is. If you need forgiveness right now, here's what, some, when somebody forgives you, I want you to understand what's happening. Atonement is actually happening in some way, in a unique way, in that moment. Because a, a wrong has been committed, and when you have trespassed or committed a wrong against somebody or towards somebody, when they forgive you, they are saying there is pain because of what you have done. And rather than me making the score even and causing pain back, I will absorb the pain of this moment and I will set you free from my retaliation. I will set you free from my right to have revenge in this moment. And by that, they are taking that moment and they're paying a price to set you free. And in that moment, they're not, they're not Jesus to you, but I can tell you they are acting like Jesus towards you. They're doing the very thing that Jesus did on the cross by saying, I will let you go free. I will absorb the pain. I will, I will pay a price. So you have to understand atonement. See, 
They're not taking the place of Jesus. God's grace is still there for you, and they're not taking, but they are acting like Jesus. Understand atonement. There's a heavy price. And with that, if you want to receive forgiveness well, you might have to do number three, and many of you are going to wrestle with this. It's going to be hard, but some of you need to understand you have to forgive yourself. Because one of the hardest things, and I've been pastoring for a long time now, and one of the things I see over and over and over again is people forgive others. They work through enormous tragedies in their life. But when they commit a sin, sometimes, and even receive forgiveness from other people, and the other people have said, you're free, they still are bound on the inside. Because even though they've been forgiven by Jesus, even though they've been forgiven by others, they have a hard time forgiving themselves for what they have done. Now, if we go to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, one of the lines in the prayer, remember Jesus is teaching us how to pray. And he's teaching us to pray this way. He says that we are to pray to, for God to forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do you understand what's happening in that prayer? The prayer that we're praying there is that we would pray that God would forgive us in the same way that we're forgiving other people. Be careful, <laughs> right, when you pray that prayer, right? Because how, you have to then look at how am I forgiving other people. If I'm really asking God to forgive me the same way I'm forgiving other people, that's kind of a dangerous prayer to pray, right? But, but I want you to see, and it's not that the grace of God is actually you know, bound to what you do. No, the grace of God is a free gift. So, but it's just getting us to think about that. It's getting us to think about it in such a way but it also works in reverse because, you know, if you can't forgive yourself and allow the grace of God to come to you, you also have a hard time giving the grace of God to other people. And some of us right now are having a hard time forgiving other people. And I just want to suggest that it may not be because of what they have done. It may be because you have a hard time receiving forgiveness and forgiving yourself and receiving the grace of God. And because you don't have a capacity to receive the grace of God for yourself, you don't have a capacity to give the grace of God to other people. And until we understand how to receive the grace of God, how to receive forgiveness, how to forgive ourselves, even after we've been forgiven, we will have a hard time being able to forgive other people. And some of this is a result of of inner vows that we make to ourselves, You know what an inner vow is? It's simply an agreement that we make with ourselves. Like it's usually an I will never or an I will always. And it's usually a result of some issue that happens, some situation that happens, or we say, and, and a lot of times we don't even know we've, we've made these inner vows because we didn't sit down and write down a contract or say it officially. But something usually happens in our life where we then create an inner vow or an agreement that we have with ourselves that says, I will never do that again. I will never let that happen. You know, for an example, um, we were, a couple of guys, uh, we were talking outside just before the service about running half marathons. And uh, years ago, when I, uh, I was in my early 20s, this guy came to me. He was an old guy. He came to me, and he's like, hey, Sean, uh, I, I'm going to be running this half marathon. You want to run with me? And I was like, no way. I hate running. I ran in junior high. I tripped over every hurdle. I was 4 foot 11, size 12 shoe. There's no way. I mean, I'm scarred for life, you know. And junior high should be outlawed in the first place, but I, I'm just scarred, right? And so, no, I hate running. And But this guy was an old guy, and I'm like, if he's going to run, I mean, he's in his 30s, and if he's going to run, then... <laughs> 
at the time, it seemed really old to me, okay? And I was like, literally, literally, this guy is old, and he's out of shape, and if he can do it, then I'll give it a shot. And so I was like, all right, so I'll, I'll start to run. And so we trained for months and finally got up to the race day, and it was cold. It was a cold November day, and it was drizzly, and I had a cold, and I was feeling horrible. And we start off on this thing, and, and I ran and finished the half marathon and hated every single second of it. And I got done with that, and I said, I, what did I say? I will never run a half marathon again. And I made some agreement. And any time somebody would come to me, it's like, no, I am never going to do that again. Well, how many of you guys know runner's amnesia can kind of take hold, and eventually, it took me about a decade, though, before I actually ran another one. But it's just an example of about how in many different areas of our life, we can make these inner agreements or these inner vows, and it doesn't even have to be a spiritual thing. It can be something like, like, I'm never going to do that again. And so I just want to give you some examples just so you can locate maybe some areas you might have done this, even in spiritual things. 2016, uh, at the beginning of 2016, we made a decision that we were going to fast. And so we are going to go 21 days a full food fast, no food, just, just liquids, just, just like water and juice. That was it as a spiritual fast before the Lord, 21 days. And we got, I remember, we got into like the 20th day, and I'd be having conversations with people, and they would ask me, they'd say, can you survive? I'm talking to you. I, yes. I, I'm telling you, I had many people ask me that question on the day 20. Can you survive without eating 20 days? Yes, you can survive eating without 20 days. But, and so I did. I got done with that. And I said, what did I say? I will never. I will never do that again. But I've done that many times since then because God had to work on me because God was like, I didn't authorize that vow. I didn't authorize that agreement. That was not part of our deal. You don't get to do that. Satan, for, you know, part of it, Satan appeared to me many times in the form of a whopper, you know, during that time. And, <laughs> and, and so these are just examples of even spiritual things that we can make these inner vows. Uh, another example, I was in a season of ministry years ago. There was a very difficult season of ministry. I'd been hurt by a lot of situations. And listen, all of us go through that, right? You don't have to be in ministry to go through that. You don't have to be a pastor to go through that. You go through this in your relationships with your family or friends or work. And I was in a season like that, and I, and I said, I will never let someone get close to me like that again. How many of you guys know when you're following Jesus, you don't get to make that statement? But I made it. And you know what it did? Because I made that little inner agreement with myself, for a season, people tried to get close and I kept them away. I, I, people tried to get close and I just said, nope, you're not getting any closer than that. I didn't tell them that, but I didn't let them any closer. Do you see how it'd be hard to receive forgiveness from people if you won't let someone get close? If you won't let someone get to the deeper places of your heart, you're not gonna be able to receive forgiveness. So there's all these inner vows that we make. You know, Becca talked about one last week in our celebration that she said, and I said this too, when I was a youth pastor, I said, well, there's one thing I will never be, and I will never be a senior pastor. I said that. She said, I will never be a senior pastor's wife. All right, good, we're on the same page there. And God's like, 
Um, hello. <laughs> I didn't say that was part of the plan, right? But we make all these. And so listen, right now, if you are in this cycle in relationships, and some of you guys will identify that you're in this cycle of a relationship, that it doesn't matter who you're with, it doesn't matter what friend group you're a part of, it doesn't matter what business you go to and work for, it doesn't matter even for some, for some people even what marriage you get into or whatever it is, but if you still have the same problems, no matter where you go, no matter who you're with, It could be a lot of things, but I'm saying one of the things it could be is that you've made some inner agreement with yourself that I am always going to do this and I'm never gonna let people do this. And so it's gonna be hard for you to walk in forgiveness. It's gonna be hard for you to walk in freedom. It's gonna be hard for you to experience the fullness of what relationships are like. And you're gonna have to learn how to receive the grace of God because inner vows can keep you from God's best. And some of you have made an inner vow, and you may not even realize you have, but you, this shame that I talked about is so weighty for you that you have said something like this, maybe in your heart, maybe not out loud, but you've said something like, I'm not worthy of being forgiven. And if you've made a statement like that internally or maybe even subconsciously, I, I'm not worthy, then how could you ever forgive yourself? And if you can't forgive yourself, and receive the grace of God, you'll never be able to fully forgive others. Because some of us, again, if we have trouble, for, if you have trouble forgiving somebody in your life right now, it may just be that you don't know how to receive the grace of God for yourself. And God wants to break some things in you today, and we're gonna have an opportunity for that. But what I wanna do right now is we're gonna receive communion together right now here in the middle of the message. Just like in that video, it talked about this is a symbol of you know, the juice represents the blood that was spilled for us. The, the bread represents the body that was broken for us. And we do this to remember the atonement. We do this to remember that Jesus took our place on the cross. We do this to remind ourselves that atonement has happened. We do this to remind ourselves about the truth of God's grace. And so... During this song, I've asked Pastor Aaron to sing this song. I I want you to be reminded of how powerful the blood of Jesus is. And we talk about it washes away our sins, washes us white as snow. We sing songs about it. And some of us need to come back to the truth and to remind ourselves about how powerful the grace of God is. And to remember that he did take our place. And if you're struggling in this cycle of of having a hard time entering into relationships with other people or this hard time of forgiveness or receiving forgiveness, best place you can start is reminding yourself of how good God's forgiveness is. He doesn't have to get back up on the cross. He paid the price. He doesn't say you're finished. He says it is finished. Let's take some time during this song as we receive these elements that represent that last supper and also represent the cross to remind ourselves of God's grace, to receive forgiveness, to receive grace, to remind ourselves of the truth. God, we thank you so much for your power, your grace, for the blood that was spilled for us on the cross, how you made atonement for us that somebody had to pay and you said, I'll pay the price. So, Lord, we thank you for that as we are reminding ourselves of the truth right now. I pray that you would set 
people free, even in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Never loses his power. Never loses his power. I believe I can just sense like some healing is happening for somebody right now, like internally. I've got one more, one more point though, to participate in this full forgiveness process. You might have to do this last thing, which is what I call reset the tin. And I'll explain what that is here in just a moment. But I just want to establish something. If I stole something, do you think God would forgive me? What about if I, um, if I lied, would God forgive me? Or committed adultery, or how about murder? What if I harmed an, a vulnerable person? I know those are difficult things to think about. What I'm trying to establish is how far would I have to go before God wouldn't forgive me? And God's grace is big enough for any sin, right? Or how many times would I have to sin? Like, is there a limit that I get per day? <laughs> in fact, the, the disciples kind of asked this, and Peter asked this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. It says, then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. See, what happens is a lot of times many of us do have a line. Many of us do have a line of what, what God wouldn't forgive. Usually it's what other people have done, Right? It's like, well, God won't forgive that. And many of us have a line when somebody sins against us, how many times we'll actually forgive them. See, Peter says, his line was seven. He's like, seven times? I don't know what happened on the eighth time for Peter, but it wasn't good. Whatever happened, wasn't good. But he had a line. He's like, seven times, right? And God's like, no, not seven times, but how about 70 times seven? And it wasn't about that number. It was God saying, no, it's, it's really, it's infinite. That's what it is. Because my, my grace doesn't stop with a certain number. God's grace doesn't stop with a certain thing. God's grace is big enough. And you, have you guys know the gospel is one giant story of forgiveness. If it's a story of anything, it's a story of forgiveness. And so Jesus goes on and tells a story right after this about this king who uh, went to go collect debts from people who owed him money. And there was this guy who owed him a ton of money. But this guy had no way to repay it. And in that time, if you didn't have any way to repay then basically you'd be sold into servitude to be able to pay off your debt by working off your debt. Not just you, but your wife and your children and everybody that you had any ties to that they could do. They would, they would sell you off into basically slavery to pay off the debt. So this guy comes to the king and he's begging the king saying, please have mercy on me. I, I'll find a way to pay it, but don't, don't take my kids and my wife and, and give me a chance. Give me another chance. And the king had grace on him and forgave all of his debt, this huge sum. So this guy who was forgiven this huge debt then turns around and goes to a guy who owed him just a little bit of money. And he grabs the guy by the throat and he's like, pay me everything right now. And, the, and that guy begins to beg and say, please, give me another shot. Like, please have mercy on me. And this guy grabs him by the throat and he says, no, I'm not gonna have mercy on you. 
And when that king who'd forgiven him so much heard about it, he went back and he was like, and we can see this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 34, 35 says, and his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. The point here of the story is we have been forgiven so much by God, right? But how often do we turn around and grab somebody by the throat who has done something wrong to us when in comparison what we've been forgiven by God is so much and we demand that we will not forgive them until they pay us back everything. Listen, let me just be real. Most of the time, this does not happen in, in actuality. It actually happens inside of our hearts and inside of our minds. And some of us right now are living in this constant. We've got somebody by the throat that we will not let go. And God says, now's the time to be free. And what I say by, by reset the 10, John Maxwell, some of you guys know John Maxwell, a leadership guy has written several books. Uh, I heard a podcast this last week where it says that whenever he meets somebody new, he, he sees a 10 on their head. And what does that mean? Like between one and 10, like 10 being the greatest, 10 being the most potential, 10 being the most trust, 10 being, you know, what, whatever it is, the best, he starts everybody out with a 10. And he, he's not going he's just going to assume the best out of everybody. The Bible tells us to assume the best, right? To believe the best. This is what he says he does with everybody he meets. Now, they may do something in time that brings that number down, that trust number down to like a seven or a four or a three, right? But he starts everybody out with a 10. Listen, here's what some of us have done because there's hurt in our past. We never start anybody out with a 10. We start everybody out with a six, or a four, or a zero. Like, I don't trust anybody, right? But that's not the way of Scripture. And it doesn't mean we walk naive. But the heart of God, how many of you guys are thankful that God doesn't start us off with a four? He said, even while you were still sinners, I died for you. And he puts a 10 on our head and on our heart. What I'm saying is that some of us Right now, we're living, maybe it's, it's your spouse, maybe it's a close friend, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a child in your life, a sibling, whatever it is. Maybe they started off as a 10, but they've done something and they're, they're at a four, and you're holding them at a four. And in your mind, for the rest of their life, they will never be able to move off that four. What I'm saying, what the gospel story is, it's all about resetting the 10. And I'm going to challenge some of us that we need to reset the 10 again. That whenever we look at them, we need to reset the 10. Now, is trust, does trust have to be earned and built? Yes. Forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. I can forgive someone even if they're not trustworthy. And trust has to be built. Yes. See, sometimes we'll forgive somebody, but we can't trust them yet for a lot of reasons. And people will accuse us, well, you didn't really forgive. Well, that's not the truth. We did forgive, but trust has to be built, no doubt. But I'm going to have the worship team come back up as we close. And I want to say one thing about, about forgiveness and trust. At some point, here's what it looks like. Just imagine a cliff on this side and a cliff on this side. At some point, if you ever want to trust somebody again, whether you've forgiven them or not, or, or not somebody has to take a leap across. 
You're waiting for those cliffs to come together. It doesn't always happen that way. And some of you need to jump across that chasm or start building a bridge. Somebody needs to start taking a leap. Because at some point, if you're ever going to reset the tin, you got to take a leap. And I want to challenge you in that because somewhere in Paul and John Mark's relationship, I want you to understand something, that even seasoned believers, Paul, the Apostle Paul, Mark, he wrote the Gospel of Mark, even seasoned believers can have strong disagreements to the point of separating and parting ways. So just because you separate and part ways doesn't mean that you're not a seasoned believer. What I'm saying is even seasoned believers can have strong disagreements that separate and part ways. But here's also what seasoned believers do. They find a way back. They find a way back. They find a way to reset the tent. They find a way to build the bridge. They find a way to take the leap. They find a way, as much as it depends on them, to live at peace with other people. So that we could read this scripture again we read in the beginning, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Can you imagine after all this pain, one of the very last things that Paul says is get Mark, for he is useful to me in ministry. I need to have Mark here with me. What a powerful, powerful little scripture that says so much without saying very much at all. So what we're gonna do right now is I'm gonna have, have everybody stand up with us as we close. I'm gonna have our prayer teams come down at this time. And I don't know if you're in auditorium too, I'm not sure if we have prayer teams over there or not, but you can participate in this if you wanna make your way over here if they're not. What we're gonna do is during this last song, I wanna invite you, if you're struggling in this area of forgiveness, we wanna pray with you. If you're struggling in this area of receiving forgiveness, maybe you're, you're weighted down with shame, we wanna help pray for you. If you are have this inner vow that you don't even know how you've made it or what it looks like, we believe it can be broken today. If you're struggling in relationships that seem like a cycle over and over and over again, it's probably the case. We want to pray with you. And I want to encourage you to be bold and brave. Don't doesn't matter who's looking, doesn't matter. Everyone here, I believe, in this building is going to be praying for you if you come. And it's not about that anyway. Because if you can't take a step in a moment like this where you're surrounded by people who love you and are praying for you, then I don't know if you ever will be able to. But this is the moment when some of us need to break off some things, receive healing, receive prayer. And I'm going to invite you during this song, because we're going to do it during this song, and we're going to be praying with you. So if that's you, step out as we come, as we sing. Lord, we thank you so much for your power. We just say, refine us, let us walk in freedom, and let us walk in forgiveness. And Lord, we, we believe that we're going to see chains broken today, lives changed in Jesus' name. Amen. As the worship team sings, please come. <laughs>